Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 52 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 134 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended June 8th, 2019. Welcome. This week, if you've been listening to the podcast, you saw some things happening that should be familiar to you. And if you're following as well, you should be much more apt at being able to discern what he is doing. One was, we talked last week at the end of the week, that Trump suddenly, the day after Mueller took the stage and finally spoke to the American people, all of a sudden declared a trade war against Mexico. And it's a technique that he has used throughout his time in office. Here's this shiny coin, look over here, not at what Mueller said after he had spent last Thursday morning insulting Mueller, he then in the afternoon announced this trade war. Uh, So we saw that playing out this week, and we're going to talk about that towards the end of the week. And then we also saw something, remember the first week after he took office and started to establish this alternative reality, where you saw the inauguration crowd and a photo of it. And Trump telling us that he had the largest inauguration crowd ever, just like the largest win ever in the election. And then you'd see the photo and like it looked like a few people standing around on grass. Um, That was part of a pattern throughout that not only he, but his regime has been part of establishing this alternative reality. So this week we saw that play out where he was in the UK and he said there might have been protests. He didn't see any protests. And that's a photo that you'll see accompany this week's list. There were reportedly 75,000 people protesting. Um, so again, it's just an example of tools that are standard authoritarian kind of tools that you see in other regimes that have come to power and that now we are seeing here. Also notably, we're going to talk about everyday racism, our section there, but also related to all the different chips away from women's rights that we are seeing um, and some scary ways that things are being approached now that I'm going to cover as well as the first week of Pride. We're off to a very bad start, just like Black History Month when we talked about all the inappropriate things that were happening a few months ago. Same with Pride. This is life in the era of Trump, and the American values have changed. So as we get into the list, I just want to talk about some items that kind of just got lost as we started out this week. One was, as we started the week, Emmett Flood, remember him? Um, last Saturday, as we started the week, Trump announced that he was resigning. He was the White House lawyer during the Mueller probe. He is leaving the White House, which kind of seems kind of weird. It was a big story. There was a lot of speculation as to why suddenly he was leaving, even though the Mueller probe is over. There's certainly a wake of all the stuff that's coming out of it. Uh, But as many things every week that we cover, there was a lot of questions about why that happened. And then in the chaos that got lost. Um, Also on the next day, Sunday, Trump tweeted that his true friend, White House economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, was also resigning. Uh, We don't know the reason for that, but reporting indicated that was relating to his frustration over Trump's trade wars. And we're going to talk about some of the results of those trade wars in our economy this week. But those things happened in the beginning of the week, and again, a lot of attention, but then the chaos started and they were forgotten. Um, 
As always, I want to start the week with some stories that kind of caught my eye that, again, this is standard authoritarianism, but on Sunday, the Washington Post reported that informal briefings lasting five to six minutes on the White House driveway by Trump, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, and others have replaced formal daily press briefings. The James S. Brady press briefing room has become dusty, cobwebbed, and abandoned. The last formal press briefing was 83 days ago, a record period for not briefing the press. Uh, and that story was last Sunday, so we can add we're now into the 90s <laughs> uh, since Trump's press secretary, which I don't even know why we have it, um, briefed the press. Members of the media have complained about the gaggles, as they're called, these informal um, meetings that they do, these five to six mini meetings, citing their brevity, impromptu nature, and lack of set topics, and said it allows the regime to communicate on their terms, not as has been done traditionally. We talked about last week how unusual this is, not only for the um, White House, but also for the State Department and the Defense Department. The Washington Post also reported the media has stopped giving Trump the benefit of the doubt in describing false statements as falsehoods or baseless claims and increasingly is are, is using the term lies. So as we started out the week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said in a speech that the Trump regime was ready to negotiate with the clerical leaders of Iran with no preconditions because that went so well with North Korea. Weeks after the regime, I think it was three weeks we were talking about, Trump was thinking about starting a war with Iran, and now we're ready to negotiate without preconditions. Because just like the tariffs, there is one person making all the decisions relating to foreign policy, relating to trade policy, relating to everything. We are in so many ways already living in an authoritarian regime. On Sunday, before departing for his UK trip, Trump made an unannounced stop at the McLean Bible Church in Virginia in order to, according to the White House, pray for the victims and community of Virginia Beach, where there was a shooting late last week. Uh, Trump came directly from Trump National Golf Club in Sterling, Virginia, wearing khakis, a jacket over a polo shirt, and golf shoes, and a golf hat. Neither Trump nor Pastor David Platt mentioned the shooting while on stage, however, and apparently the pastor was not informed in advance of Trump's arrival. On Sunday, in a statement posted on the church's website, Pastor Platt said his prayer was not an, ad- an endorsement of Trump or his policy and expressed sympathy for church members hurt by Trump's surprise visit. So that's where we are, folks. The head of state goes into a church and the pastor has to apologize for him. On Sunday, a cast member of The Handmaid's Tale said the U.S. is now, quote, a heck of a lot closer to the fictional dystopian nation of Gilead than it was during the filming of season one, adding, quote, which is terrifying. Don't we all know that? On Sunday, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney said on Fox News Sunday that Trump did not know about the request to hide the USS John McCain last week and said, quote, we think it's much ado about nothing. Notice this week that everybody has totally forgotten about the John McCain, other than the people in the UK who did hang up replicas of that (laughs) to commemorate Trump's visit, but we've stopped talking about it. Like everything else, you know, in the chaos, these things get lost. 
On Sunday, Representative James Clyburn told State of the Union on impeachment, quote, we have to bring the public along, adding we believe if we, quote, sufficiently educate the public, then we will have done our jobs. On Sunday, in an interview for Axios on HBO, when asked if he would alert the FBI if Russia requested another meeting, Jared Kushner said, I don't know, adding, we were not given anything that was salacious. Now we're going to get into Trump's European visit, because we know how well the visit to Japan went last week. Uh, So here was the buildup to his uh, visit to the UK. As you'll recall, as we close out last week's podcast, he had insulted the Duchess of the UK, Merkel, and, and she had in a 2016 interview called him a misogynist, which obviously he is, and he had called her nasty. Well, on Saturday, London Mayor Sadat Khan said in an op-ed that the UK is, quote, on the wrong side of history with Trump's visit, likening Trump to European dictators of the 1930s and 40s and military juntas of the 70s and 80s. On Monday, when asked by reporters before leaving for the UK if Trump would meet with Khan during his trip, Trump responded, quote, no, I don't think much of him. Trump also compared Khan to the New York City mayor, a Democrat who last month announced his 2020 presidential campaign, saying, quote, I think he's he's the twin of de Blasio, except shorter. En route to the UK, Trump attacked Khan, tweeting he, quote, by all accounts, has done a terrible job as mayor of London and calling him a, quote, stone cold loser just moments before landing in the UK for a visit. Trump's tweet also alluded to his controversy last weekend, where he denied calling Duchess Meghan Markle nasty, despite an audio of him doing so, tweeting Khan was foolishly nasty to him. So again, that's another example, just like saying he didn't see the crowds protesting. He says he didn't say nasty, even though on an audio, he said nasty. Don't believe your lying eyes. Hours later, as Trump arrived in the UK, where Fox News is not aired, Trump tweeted, quote, the only problem is that CNN is a primary source of news available from the U.S., calling it, quote, unfair with such bad fake news. Trump tweeted, quote, why doesn't owner AT&T do something and suggested a boycott of AT&T, tweeting if people stopped, which he misspelled, using or subscribing to AT&T, they would be forced to make big changes at CNN. So here's where I back up and remind you some context of that story, that Trump is telling people to boycott AT&T, which is a corporation, and how often does something like that happen? Well, it happens all the time with Trump, but never before. Um, I also want to remind everybody, this might have even been before he did the podcast, because I've been tweeting about this since 2017, when all of a sudden our Department of Justice tried to block the merger between AT&T and Time Warner, and said they would need to sell off, Time Warner would need to sell off CNN which, you know, as an ex-Wall Streeter, that really struck me as where, like, that should not have been a part of the deal. That's not an overlap that they needed to deal with. Uh, and conveniently around that time, Robert Murdoch said he would bid for CNN. Well, as it turned out, even though at that point everyone told me I was hysterical for thinking such a thing and it was too fantastical to believe, it did turn out, in, in fact, to be the case that Trump was you know pissed off at CNN and that he called people in his administration in and made sure that they did what they could to block that merger, which did go through. But here we are again, having Trump attack in a U.S. company uh, that owns CNN and saying people should boycott AT&T, which got a lot of attention on Monday 
But like everything else, by Tuesday we had forgotten. On Monday, Trump also tweeted, quote, London part of Twip trip is going really well. The Queen and the entire royal family have been fantastic. Adding, quote, tremendous crowds of well-wishers and people that love our country. Trump also tweeted, quote, haven't seen any protests yet. Adding, quote, but I'm sure the fake news will be working hard to find them. Tens of thousands of people had signed up to protest in central London on Tuesday. On Monday, CNN reported Queen Elizabeth II formally invited just Trump and First Lady Melania to the official state banquet at Buckingham Palace. However, four of his five children and two of their spouses also showed up. Talk about class. Ivanka and Jared were set to attend in their capacity as formal advisor and part of the U.S. delegation, but Trump also brought Donald Jr., Eric and his wife, Laura, and Tiffany to mix with princes, dukes, and duchesses because, voila, we have a royal family in the U.S. On Tuesday, Mayor Khan responded to Trump, telling CNN it was, quote, the sort of behavior I would expect from an 11-year-old, adding, adding to respond in, in a like would be, quote, beneath me to do childish tweets and name-calling. And this is where I say the 11-year-olds are insulted by the comparison. Um, on Tuesday, organizers of Together Against Trump estimated that 75,000 anti-Trump protesters turned out for demonstrations in London. A 20-foot-high diaper-clad baby Trump blimp was flown above Parliament Square. And although we didn't capture that in this weekly list photo, you can see a miniature version of it captured for eternity on our website uh, with this week's list. At a news conference with British Prime Minister Theresa May, Trump again denied the protests, saying, I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today when I came, very small. So a lot of it is fake news. Again, 75,000 people. Sounds small to me. Um, shortly after the news conference, CNN aired footage of the demonstrators, including a giant Trump robot sitting on a toilet and repeating fake news and witch hunt, <laughs> and others holding anti-Trump signage. On Wednesday, Trump tweeted, quote, If the totally corrupt media was less corrupt, I would be up by 15 points in the polls, citing, quote, Tremendous success with the economy, maybe best ever. Trump also tweeted, if the corrupt media was actually fair, it'd be up by 25 points. See, he went up 10 points in two tweets. Quote, nevertheless, despite the fake news, we're doing great. Notably, these tweets were sent on the anniversary of D-Day. On Wednesday, in an interview with British broadcaster Piers Morgan, Trump said he was, quote, making up for not serving at Vietnam and drafting a Dodge draft dodging the draft five times, uh, by spending billions on rebuilding our military. Trump said of the Vietnam War, he was, quote, never a fan of the conflict, adding, quote, I thought it was a terrible war. I thought it was very far away and that nobody ever heard of the country. Okay. The interview was broadcast before Trump attended UK ceremonies to mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day. When asked if he would serve in another war, Trump said, I would not have minded that at all. On Wednesday, Trump flew to his money-losing golf course in Doonbeg, Ireland for a two-night stay. From there, Trump flew to France and back on Thursday before departing back to the U.S. on Friday. 
So the visit marked the third time Trump has paused an overseas trip to stop at his properties, also Waikiki and Turnberry. It was not clear how many from Trump's large contingent would stay at the resort. So again, just need to point out, instead of on Wednesday flying from the UK to France to attend ceremonies in Normandy, Trump flew instead to Ireland to stay at his property and then did a trip from Ireland back and forth to France that day, just so he could highlight his property. The Irish Times reported Trump originally wanted to meet with the Irish Prime Minister at his golf club, but uh, Vardarkar suggested a nearby Prime Minister Vardarkar suggested a nearby hotel. They settled on meeting at a VIP lounge at the airport. Weeks before the trip, Trump had threatened to cancel the stop in Ireland entirely and stop in Scotland instead at his property there amid a disagreement on where he and the prime minister would meet. The Washington Post reported Trump's children also used the Europe trip to promote themselves and their family businesses. All of their children use their social media accounts to promote their attendance at high-profile activities. Typically, family members participate in cultural events, but not bilateral meetings. However, Trump's children were present at all sta- at the state dinner with the Queen, at a dinner at the residence of the UN ambassador, and more. It was unclear if American taxpayers would be paying the cost of the family's travel, the Scotsman reported the trip cost the U.S. government close to $4 million, including $1.3 million for the five-star Qatari-backed hotel in London. The Irish Post reported during a pub crawl in Dunbeg, Don Jr. and Eric ordered a round of drinks for locals but failed to pay, saying they didn't carry cash and put it on the tab. As of the publishing of this list, the owner had not been paid. On Friday... Despite the Trump Org's 2017 pledge that, quote, no communication of the organization would mention Trump, the Trump Dunebag Resort sent two tweets publicizing his visit. The tweets were later deleted after being criticized. The Washington Post reported Trump has visited more than a dozen Trump-branded properties while in office. Trump has visited these properties every month in office except for two months. And those two months were last December and then January 2017, and he was only in office for 12 days out of January 2017. On Sunday, a CNN poll found support for impeachment rose from 37% last month to 41%, which is still below the highest number, which was 47% in September 2018. 54% at this point do not support impeachment. The increase from 37 to 41% came from Democrats. Currently, 76% of Democrats are in favor of impeachment. Now we're going to get into our everyday sexism, racism, homophobia section. On Saturday, an Airbnb host was taped asking black guests, quote, which monkey is going to stay on the couch and then kicking them out in the middle of the night. This is a second racist Airbnb incident in recent months. On Saturday, Bishop Thomas Tobin drew ire from tweeting, quote, Catholics should not support or attend LGBTQ Pride Month events, saying they, quote, promote a culture and encourage activities harmful for children. On Sunday, Tobin said he regretted the controversy, his remarks, which came on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, had created, 
but declined to withdraw the statement. On Monday, Mark Chambers, a mayor in Alabama, called for the killing of LGBTQ people on Facebook, saying, quote, the only way to change it would be to kill the problem out. Without killing them out, there's no way to fix it. Chambers later denied he wrote the post, then when confronted by the media, defended his comments, saying he did not say anything, killing out gays or anything like that. On Tuesday, he apologized on Facebook. On Tuesday, three heterosexual men in Boston said they are making preparations for a possible street pride parade this summer. The organizers said they feel, quote, we're the, an oppressed majority. On Friday, NBC News reported the Trump regime denied requests by U.S. embassies in Israel, Germany, Brazil, and Latvia, and other embassies to fly an LGBTQ pride uh, flag during the month. The Obama administration made blanket grants for pride flags. Also this year, Secretary of State Pompeo did not approve a cable sent in past years giving encouragement to engage in outreach with local LGBTQ communities. On Friday, Detroit police charged Devin Robinson, 18, for killing two gay men and a transgender woman. A Wayne County assistant prosecutor said the victims were targeted for being part of the LGBTQ community. So, a lot of news and happy start to Pride Month. On Wednesday, YouTube announced it will remove thousands of videos and channels that advocated for neo-Nazism, white supremacy, and bigotry that were used to incite hatred, harassment, discrimination, and violence. So, finally, we're starting to see our media, and especially YouTube, there's been a lot of you know, there's been a lot of articles out about how YouTube has become a gateway drug for white supremacy. Um, they're finally starting to address that. Uh, now I'm going to talk a little bit about within this subset, what's happening at our Southern border on Saturday, AP reported not only in our Southern border, but just in policies general with immigrants and, and also, you know, with refugees, just how we're reshaping and making America white and the atrocities at our southern border. On Saturday, AP reported, in a vast expansion of the Trump regime screening, the State Department will require social media usernames, previous email addresses, and phone numbers from applicants for visas. The change, proposed in May 2018, will impact about 15 million applicants each year. In the past, only a small fraction of applicants identified for extra secure scrutiny were required to divulge this information. On Monday, Customs and Border Protection said in a statement that a 40-year-old Honduran woman apprehended near the border in Eagle Pass, Texas, died that morning shortly after being in their care. This marked the third death in three days near the U.S.-Mexico border. On Sunday, a 33-year-old El Salvador man died, on and on Saturday, Johanna Medina Leon, a 25-year-old transgender woman, died in El Paso. So again, I'm just going to draw back attention to a couple of weeks ago when Speaker Pelosi said in 10 years, no children died in our care. Um, we've already had six children die in the Trump regime's care, and we're going to get into as well how many adults have died, but three and three days. On Monday, a federal judge rejected a House lawsuit to block Trump from spending billions on his wall, saying the House lacked legal standing to sue Trump for overstepping his powers by transferring funds to pay for it. 
The judge said the case, quote, presents a close question, but said the House has other levers to use, including denying funds, passing other legislation, conducting hearings and investigations, or overriding a president's veto. It would be nice for them to do any of those things. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted, quote, just had a big victory in federal court over the Democrats in the House on the desperately needed border wall, adding, quote, a big step in the right direction. Wall is under construction. On Monday, a Supreme Court denied the Trump regime's request for a swift hearing on its case to end Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, also known as DACA. No judge dissented. On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he, quote, probably will not bring up a bill passing the House to give DREAMers 10 years of legal residence if they meet certain requirements. On Wednesday, a Health and Human Services email obtained by the Washington Post showed the regime is canceling English classes, recreational programs, and legal aid for unaccompanied minors in federal migrant shelters. The regime cited funding and a, quote, dramatic spike in unaccompanied minors. The move could run afoul of a federal court settlement and state licensing requirements that mandate education and recreation. Attorney said the move violated the Flores Agreement that requires governments to provide education and recreation activities to migrant children in its care. Last week, attorneys also filed a motion claiming the regime is violating the Flores Agreement by keeping migrant children at the Homestead Facility. We've talked about the Homestead Facility. That's a for-profit facility owned by a GOP donor, and John Kelly recently joined their board. Um, Some keeping some migrant children in the homestead facility for months in some cases instead of releasing them within 20 days. On Friday, AP reported the Trump regime opened a new emergency facility in Carrizo Springs, Texas, that can hold up to 1,600 migrant teens. The facility once housed oil field workers on government-leased land. The regime's Office for Refugee Resettlement is also considering using Army and Air Force bases in Georgia, Montana, and Oklahoma to house 1,400 more migrant children. These facilities are considered temporary. I just want to draw back your attention to Homestead and what's happening there. We've talked in past weeks about Congresswoman trying to go and show up there and being denied a visit. Uh, We've talked about the ties to Kelly and it being for profit, and the children are stuck in there for much longer than the 20 days they're allowed to under the Flores Settlement. Now we're going to talk about what's happening with women. Um, Beyond the abortion bans that are going up, I'll mention some of those, there's all these other small nicks of normalcy, um, of you know, that are, that are more subtle, but in some ways more troubling because in their aggregate, it just shows that we're being attacked by so many angles at once. On Wednesday, the regime said it will sharply curtail federal spending on medical research that uses tissue from aborted fetuses, largely conducted by the National Institute of Health. The move, which fulfills a top goal of anti-abortion groups, will affect research on finding cures for diseases impacting millions of Americans like cancer, HIV, Parkinson's, and dementia. On Wednesday, the Wisconsin legislature passed four anti-abortion bills, including an alarmist measure imposing criminal penalties on doctors who fail to give medical care to a baby born alive during an abortion attempt. 
Wisconsin's Democratic governor said he planned to veto the bills while Republicans will not be able to override. Trump touted the bill during a recent visit and mocked Governor Tony Evers for his veto promise. And don't forget, at Trump rallies, we've covered this. He's been talking about babies being born alive uh, after abortions and doctors and mothers deciding together whether to kill them or not. This is the kind of rhetoric that he and the GOP have been using. And Wisconsin GOP actually passed a bill addressing this. On Thursday, the LA Times reported on Missouri's latest abortion, last abortion clinic, filled with patients sobbing and terrified that at any moment the judge could close the clinic and doctors anxious and heartbroken. This week, Dr. Randall Williams, the director of Missouri State Health Department, questioned the clinic's safety and started requiring physicians to perform a pelvic exam at least 72 hours before every abortion. The Kansas City Star editorial board condemned the practice, saying the pelvic exams harass women and doctors. One doctor who was forced to give a pelvic exam said, quote, it broke me as a physician to do this to her. On Friday, the University of Alabama Board of Trustees voted to return a $26 million donation from a top donor, Hugh Culverhouse, after he called for students to boycott the school over the state's abortion ban. Hours after Culverson's statement on the ban, the university said it was considering giving back his donation, the biggest donation ever made to the school. His name was also removed from the law school. On Friday, in an op-ed, Culverson, who is an independent voter, noted the students who need financial aid will lose out by the school returning his donation, as will the university for, quote, all the names that will never appear on their admissions roll. On Saturday, 42 attorneys in Alabama, Georgia, Ohio, and Texas joined 38 elected officials, including district attorneys and attorneys general, saying they will not prosecute health care providers or women seeking abortions. On Friday, the Washington Post reported Scott Burley's mass shooting at a yoga studio in week 104 was fueled by male supremacy. Hatred of women has become the new feeder network for white supremacy and neo-Nazi groups. The Southern Poverty Law Center has added, quote, male supremacy as a new category to its tracking lists of U.S. hate movements, including men who view women as genetically inferior and needing to be sexually submissive. On Friday, lawyers for House Democrats question why the Department of Justice is not defending certain laws including the department's decision to walk away from defending a statute barring female genital mutilation. So again, I'm just going to back up here to give some context. They did the same thing with Obamacare. Um, Our Department of Justice is supposed to defend our country's laws. (laughs) It's that simple. That's what you do. They didn't defend Obamacare early in the Trump regime. And then under Barr, they've gone so far as not only to not defend Obamacare, which is the law of the land, they're also now attacking it and trying to get rid of it, which is not supposed to be what the Department of Justice does. But here's another case involving female genital mutilation, which is barred in our country, uh, where our Department of Justice was is not upholding the law. In defending the DOJ abandoning the first federal criminal prosecution in our country for female genital mutilation in Michigan, 
Solicitor General Noel Francisco said the department determined it lacked a reasonable defense. So those are just all examples this week. And, and like I said, they're just, some of them are subtle, like, you know, not defending against female genital mutilation, using these extremist and alarmist laws. Um, these are just subtle clicks, but they're more and more each week. It is time to be alarmed, folks. On Wednesday, retailer Sephora closed its U.S. stores for an hour to provide diversity training to its 16,000 employees a month after R&B star SCA said the Sephora employee called security on her while shopping. On Wednesday, the Oregon State Senate passed a bill allowing victims of racially motivated 911 calls to sue for up to $250 following nationwide incidents of white people calling black calling police on black people doing everyday activities, including in Oregon. We've covered some of those. On Friday, Nicholas Wesley Rose, 28, pleaded guilty to an anti-Semitic plot targeting three congregations in Orange County. Rose had kill lists of prominent Jewish figures. On Tuesday, the Oregon House passed a bill granting the state's electoral votes to the national popular vote winner. Oregon's seven electoral votes would make 196 of the 270 needed. The bill now goes to the governor. So now we're going to talk about some everyday conflicts of interest, corruption in the Trump regime, starting with a story on Monday. And these stories come out again, and it's like, oh, my God. And in normal times, every single one of these stories would be front page for months and top of the hour for months. But in the Trump regime, it's one of five stories of this caliber every single day. So it gets no attention by the next day. On Monday, and, and the New York Times put together this story because of previous travel that Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, who uh, is married to Mitch McConnell, had planned. They tried to get her travel agenda, her calendar. So all of this information that's in this article came out or most of it, as a result of a Freedom of Information Act request. And then there was some background in this article. It was pretty comprehensive. But the New York Times reported on Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao's conflicts with her family shipping business. Her agency called to cut a program meant to stabilize the financially troubled U.S. maritime industry. The Chinese government, meanwhile, has greatly expanded in the maritime industry, both cuts, there were two cuts that were suggested by her agency, were voted down in Congress. Her family's gifts and donations have helped make her husband, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, one of the richest senators. A copy of Chow's calendar showed 21 interviews or meetings in her first year with Chinese news organizations, including some related to her family. In one, her father said he traveled on Air Force One and talked business with Trump. Her October 2017 trip to China was abruptly canceled after media inquiries about her itinerary and companions and ethics questions that were referred to the State and Transportation Department. On Monday, George Nader, a key witness in the Mueller probe who served as a liaison between Trump supporters, Middle East leaders, and Russia in early 2017, was charged with transporting child pornography. Nader has also helped, also helped arrange the Sicilis meeting in January 2017 between Eric Prince and a Russian official. Nader was charged on child pornography in April 2018. He pleaded guilty to the same charge in 1991. On Tuesday, Senator Tim Kaine said the Trump regime 
gave a green light to U.S. energy firms to export technology and know-how to Saudi Arabia on October 18, 2018, just 16 days after Jamal Khashoggi's killing. A second transfer was approved February 18, 2019. Senator Kane, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, cited Department of Energy records and said the regime took months to answer the transfers occurred. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported the State Department forced out Deputy Assistant Secretary Charles Faulkner after he steered billions in contracts to defense company Raytheon, where he previously worked as a lobbyist. I'm actually surprised they fired him for that. That seems to be like lunch on Tuesday. No big deal with this regime, but this particular guy was fired. Uh, on Wednesday, research by cybersecurity firm System Symantec found Russian manipulation of Twitter through Internet Research Agency had far more sway and reached more people than originally believed. The report found a, quote, vast disinformation network and large fake accounts played to both sides of the aisle and pretended to be regional news outlets, while a smaller subset amplified those messages. So this is the second big story this week on you know, how social media, actually including the Washington Post story on the male supremacy, how these hate groups have been rising up and using social media, but also how Russia was able to harness social media in a much bigger way than we've known publicly. Uh, on, on Thursday, the Washington Post reported Naru El Kasnazan, a wealthy Iraqi sheikh who urged a hardline approach to Iran in letters to Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton, stayed 26 nights at Trump Hotel DC suite. The unusual long visit, the longest of 1,200 VIP guests listed, was estimated to cost tens of thousands of dollars. Kaznazin told the Post that he normally stays at the Hay Adams Hotel, but just heard about Trump Hotel DC. Kaznazin said that also told the Post he is advocating for U.S. military confrontation with Iran and that he considers himself to be a viable candidate for president of Iraq. The White House did not comment, but again, 26 nights at the Trump D.C. suites. On Monday, House Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler said his committee would hold a hearing titled Lessons from the Mueller Report, Presidential Obstruction and Other Crimes, and called Nixon lawyer John Dean. That's going to be this coming week. On Monday, House Oversight Chair Elijah Cummings said he was moving to hold Attorney General Barr and Commerce Secretary William Ross, excuse me, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena seeking information on the 2020 citizenship question, which we talked about last week. Chair Cummings gave a Thursday deadline for turning over information and said in letters, quote, the Trump administration has been engaging in one of the most unprecedented cover-ups since Watergate. On Thursday, the Justice Department and Commerce Departments rejected Chairman Cummings' demands for more documents, saying the documents are protected by attorney-client privilege and therefore cannot be disclosed. The Commerce Department accused the committee of trying to interfere with ongoing litigation. After the missed deadline, Chair Cummings said, quote, they seem determined to continue the Trump administration's cover-up. On Friday, Chair Cummings said his panel would vote next week on holding Barr and Ross in contempt. Assistant Attorney General Stephen Boyd said a vote would halt any ongoing cooperation with the committee. On Friday, 
according to a letter released. The White House tried to get tried to block Chris Kobach also from testifying before the House Oversight Committee about adding the citizen question citizenship question to the 2020 census. Kobach appeared before the panel Monday and refused 15 times to answer questions about his conversations with Trump or White House officials. White House counsel Pat Cipollone said the conversations are covered by executive privilege. On Monday, Politico reported House Democrats will hold a contempt vote against Barr and former White House counsel Don McGahn for defying congressional subpoenas. The vote is expected on June 11th. On Tuesday, Judge Emmett Sullivan said he wrote in a notice that he accepted the DOG's explanation for not complying with his demand to make public transcripts of calls between Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador. Remember, that was a big story last week. Then it kind of just disappeared because the judge accepted them, this very small parsing kind of explanation for not turning over um, the conversations, which if you have read or listened to the Mueller report, is a very big deal in volume two about these conversations that Flynn had with Kislyak that the judge ordered to make public and the DOJ refused and the judge seemed to go along with it. On Tuesday, CNN reported the White House directed Hope Hicks and Annie Donaldson, who we've talked about in past weeks, she was the chief of staff and took fastidious notes for Don McGahn, uh, not to over, not to turn over documents to the House Judiciary Committee related to their time at the White House. Pat Cipollone said in a letter, the documents, quote, remain legally protected from disclosure because they implicate significant executive branch confidentiality, interest, and executive privilege. So again, more stonewalling. Uh, these folks do not work any longer in the Trump regime. So in Again, they're trying to block everybody from giving anything or testifying to Congress. On Tuesday, Chairman Nadler said Hicks had agreed to turn over some documents to his committee, saying, I thanked her for that show of good faith. It was unclear if she would satisfy Democrats' sweeping demands. On Tuesday, the New York Times reported Paul Manafort is expected to be transferred in the next few weeks to Rikers Island Jail Complex in New York City, where he will likely be held in isolation while facing state fraud charges. On Wednesday, Bloomberg reported House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal will not move ahead on getting Trump's New York state tax returns under a new bill expected to be signed into law by the governor. Which, quick side note, has me going like, insane. We spent two years taking over in New York State our legislature, including our state Senate. We've been covering in past weeks how the New York State Assembly and State Senate had passed laws allowing Congress to request New York tax returns. And now Richard Neal, who's the chairman of that committee, says he doesn't want to do it. Several of Neal's House colleagues disagreed, saying the returns would answer questions on issues such as foreign holdings. Neal said he does not want to appear to be on a fishing expedition. Secretary Steve Mnuchin has turned down three requests to turn over six years of Trump's tax returns, including after being subpoenaed by Neal's committee, and is expected to end up in court. We talked about him past week, and we also talked about the story where an IRS memo was found that said the they have no choice but to turn over Trump's tax returns. This Richard Neal guy is clearly not, should not be in this position of, of chairing this committee. On Tuesday, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid changed his opinion and said the House should open an impeachment inquiry. Reid told USA Today, it's not the right thing to do, nothing. 
Reid said the most important goal is to give the American people a view of what's going on, adding public opinion may change. That's one reason an inquiry should go forward to find out how the public reacts to this. On Wednesday, Politico reported on a meeting with five judiciary chairs and Speaker Pelosi, where she clashed with Representative Nadler, Chairman Nadler, who called for launching impeachment proceedings. This is the second request Chair Nadler has made in recent weeks. More than half, reportedly 13 of 24, members of his committee, the House Judiciary Committee, are for impeachment. Pelosi again turned down the notion of impeachment. Pelosi said she preferred to oust Trump at the ballot box, saying, quote, I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him in prison. Chairs Adam Schiff, Elijah Cummings, Richard Neal, and Elliot Engel sided with Pelosi. Early Wednesday, Pelosi said in a speech, make no mistake, we know exactly what path we're on. We know what actions we need to take. So far, 60 House Democrats have called for impeachment. Remember, two weeks ago, we were at 31. Then when Pelosi spoke last week, she said there were 35, maybe 38. We're now up to 60. Pelosi also played down disagreement within her caucus, saying there's no controversy over impeachment. She later told reporters, I'm not feeling any pressure. On Thursday, CNN reported that at a private meeting of the House Judiciary Committee on May 20th, more than a dozen of the 24 members pushed Chairman Nadler to start impeachment proceedings. So he's getting pressure within his committee, and that would be the committee to hold hearings. Nadler made the case when speaking to Pelosi that his committee could look into Trump's controversies and scandals and decide on whether to pursue articles of impeachment, freeing up the other committees to focus on the legislative agenda. So those continue. Um, on Thursday, and this at, at this point, Trump is overseas. Remember, he's staying in Ireland so he can stay at his property and commuting to France, to Normandy for the 75th commemoration, celebration of D-Day. Uh, so this is what he's doing while he's abroad. Trump uh, quoted Fox News host Sean Hannity on the coverage of his Europe trips, tweeting, quote, and he's retweeting Sean Hannity's words, MSNBC ramps up hateful coverage and promotes conspiracy theories during Trump's trip to Europe. Trump quoted Hannity tweeting that he, quote, received glowing reviews from the British media. This was false. Trump was criticized by the Times, the Guardian, the Independent, Daily Telegraph, Daily Mirror, Daily Mail, etc. On Thursday, in an interview with Fox News, taped ahead of the ceremony in, Dor in Normandy, again commemorating the 75th anniversary of D-Day, Trump said Mueller, quote, made such a fool of himself with last week's public statement. So this is all, you know, here he's there for D-Day, and this is what he's talking about while abroad. Uh, Trump told host Laura Ingram on Mueller, quote, what people don't report is the letter had to do, he had to do so to straighten out his testimony because his testimony was wrong. It was unclear what letter Trump was referring to. Trump also said of Mueller, quote, he came out with a report with 13 horrible, angry Democrats who are totally biased against me, adding a couple of them worked for Hillary Clinton. On Russia, Trump said, quote, I think we can have a good relationship with Russia. I think it's hurt by the phony witch hunt. You know, I could have a good relationship with Russia. Oh, believe me, we know. Trump called Pelosi a, quote, nasty, vindictive, horrible person, adding, quote, I think she's a disgrace. I don't think she's a talented person. 
He said he tried to be nice to her to get deals done, but, quote, she's incapable of doing deals. I just want to remind you, this is all being taped on Fox News in Normandy, France, uh, and he's there for a D-Day celebration, commemorative celebration. So he's calling Pelosi, the senior Democrat, nasty, vindictive, horrible person. He also referred to Nancy as nervous Nancy twice and said she should stop focusing on his misdeeds and instead on her district in San Francisco, which he said has, quote, drugs and needles all over the place. The interview was taped with graves of allied service members as a backdrop. Trump noted people gathering for the ceremony saying, quote, what they don't realize is that I'm holding them up because of this interview. When the interview aired on Thursday, Ingram said, quote, some of you may have heard or read that President Trump supposedly held up the entire D-Day ceremony in order to do this interview with me. That is patently false fake news. So another example this week of him saying something and then I'm telling you what you just heard him say is not the truth. But you just heard him say it. And you just saw those huge crowds of 75,000 people in the UK. But Trump told you there are no protests. It's this alternate reality. Pelosi, who was also in France for the D-Day celebrations, refused to respond to Trump in an interview saying, quote, I don't talk about the president while I'm out of the country. That's my principle. On Friday, while flying back to the U.S., Trump tweeted, quote, Nervous Nancy Pelosi is a disgrace to herself and her family for having made such a disgusting statement especially since I was especially since I was with foreign leaders overseas. Ah, Trump also tweeted of her comment, quote, there is no evidence for such a thing, adding nervous Nancy and Dems are getting zero work done and they want to go on a quote fishing expedition to see if they can find anything on me. Trump also called it, quote, illegal and unprecedented in U.S. history, adding, quote, there was no collusion, investigate the investigators, and, quote, go to work on drug price reduction and infrastructure. We can take a little break from Trump to talk about this unusual thing that's happened that I'm going to keep an eye on. On Thursday, Michael Flynn fired his lawyers, Robert Kellner and Stephen Anthony, shortly before sentencing, which is really odd. No reason was given for the late dismissal, triggering speculation that he may seek to back out of his plea deal. Kellner and Anthony asked Judge Emmett Sullivan, remember him, uh, to withdraw, saying because only sentencing remained, the changes in defense team would not harm the prosecution or defense. The judge denied their motion initially on technical grounds, but on Thursday they refiled it, and on Friday he granted their motion for Flynn to remove them. Then this happened. On Thursday, new attorneys for Ekim Elpdikin, the Turkish businessman, we talked about him last week, who hired Flynn and was indicted in December but remains in Turkey, suddenly appeared in court to make a request for the judge overseeing the case. Flynn was not charged in the case against his former business partner and Elpdikin, the Turkey businessman who paid him over half a million dollars, but he was expected to be a star witness in the case. So questions on cooperation arose with Flynn bringing on new counsel and suddenly this guy kind of his attorneys, new attorneys showing up in court. Something is up with Flynn. Judge Sullivan also released the audio of John Dowd's phone call with Kellner, who is now Flynn's former attorneys, uh, following release of the transcript. The contents of the voicemail were mostly quoted in the Mueller report. The DOJ also released a slightly less redacted version of Peter Strzok's FBI notes, 
which said a top Russian official tried to set up a video teleconference between Trump and Putin on the day after Trump's inauguration. On Friday, Politico reported former Roger Stone aide Andrew Miller turned over his text messages with Stone from October 2016 to March 2017 and the written agenda for the 2016 RNC to a grand jury. On Friday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ordered the release of some sealed documents related to the mysterious legal battle between Mueller's team and a state-owned foreign company by June 21st. So there's all these kind of quiet. Remember, even though the Mueller probe is done, there were 14 cases that continue on run by our Department of Justice, which should be troublesome for all of us, given what our Department of Justice is like at this point. Uh, but again, so these are just like little specks of the cases continuing and other information continuing to come out. On Friday, in response to a lawsuit by CNN, a federal judge ruled that the FBI must unredact more portions of former Director James Comey's memos about his meetings with Russia. The ruling will allow the names of countries and world leaders referenced in conversations between the two when Trump described his dismay about how Flynn had handled the scheduling of calls with world leaders. So if you're not, if you haven't read the Mueller report or listened to it, there's speculation. Trump was very concerned about the timing of his call with Putin and very upset with Flynn for not having that be day one. But we will see because that's going to be unredacted. On Thursday, senior House Democrats on the appropriations subpanel that funds the Interior Department urged Trump to rethink his July 4th plans, saying the celebration should not be should be nonpartisan and apolitical. The lawmakers sent in a letter Trump's plans could quote create the appearance of a televised partisan campaign rally at the mall at the public expense on July 4th and asked to reconsider an earlier time or alternative location. On Thursday, in a letter to top officials, Senate Democrats asked the Federal Reserve to review Trump's Deutsche Bank transactions, citing the New York Times reporting on possible money laundering in Week 132. On Thursday, House Democrats formally introduced a resolution to hold Barr and McGahn in contempt of Congress. The resolution authorizes any committee chair to go to civil court to enforce a subpoena. On Thursday, Rudy Giuliani told the Washington Examiner he would be leaving the Trump legal team. Remember, Emmett Flood resigned on Saturday. Later in the day, he reversed himself, tweeting, I'm here until Prez doesn't need me or needs something else. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the economy and the havoc Trump is wrecking, wreaking on our economy in addition to telling people to boycott companies and attacking his Federal Reserve chairman every week. Well, it looks like he might fish his wish because he's tanking our economy to such an extent the Federal Reserve might actually have to lower rates again, but not for good reasons. On Monday, the manufacturing gauge, the ISM, also known as the Institute for Supply Management rating, dropped to 52.1 for May, the lowest level since October 2016 amid global trade trend, tr trade tension. So that's the lowest level in two and a half years since Trump took office and Obama left office. On Wednesday, credit rating agency Fitch downgraded, uh, downgraded and Moody's lowered to the outlook for Mexico's sovereign debt, citing credit worries over Pemex, which is their oil company, state-owned company, and trade tensions with the U.S. That's because of Trump. 
On Thursday, when asked by reporters about tariffs on China, Trump said tariffs, quote, could go up at least another $300 billion. I'll do the right thing at the right time, adding, I think China wants to make a deal. On Thursday, the Mexican government said it was willing to make asylum changes towards a coordinated effort to stem the flow of Central American migrants, but said they will withdraw if Trump imposes tariffs. Mexico called for the regime to commit to programs that will ease the conditions that are leading to migration. House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Neal said he would introduce a resolution of disapproval if Trump imposed tariffs on Mexico. On Friday, the U.S. non-farm payrolls for May increased by just 75,000 for the month of May, significantly lower than economists' expectations of a gain of 180,000. March and April ads were also revised lower by a combined 189,000. So again, really bad job numbers on Friday. Really bad manufacturing numbers on Monday. On Friday, CNBC reported Coke backed Americans for Prosperity, a network that historically only backed Republicans. In the era of Trump will expand its political engagement to backing Democrats in 2019 and 2020. Again, this is just not normal. The Koch brothers are going to back some Democrats. Um, we've been talking about some business, um, some businesses as well that traditionally, like the Chamber of Commerce, who has traditionally been much more aligned with the Republican Party, also because of Trump changing their focus. On Friday on his flight home from Europe, Trump tweeted, there is a, quote, good chance we will be able to make a deal with Mexico. Adding, if not, Mexico will pay tariffs at the 5% level on Monday. Later Friday, Trump tweeted they reached a deal with Mexico and U.S. would suspend tariffs indefinitely, saying Mexico agreed to strong measures to stem the tide of migration from Mexico at our southern border. On Saturday, Trump attacked the media for much false reporting on the deal by, with Mexico. Quote, by the fake and corrupt news media such as Comcast, NBC, CNN, New York Times, and Washington Post. These fakers are bad news. So again, Trump manufactured this crisis with Mexico to change the subject from the Mueller probe and Mueller's public statement last week. Now we see the economy crashing during the week. And all of a sudden, he decides on the flight home not to impose tariffs and makes up this grandiose deal that didn't exist. On Saturday, Speaker Pelosi said in a statement, quote, threats and temper tantrums are no way to negotiate foreign policy saying Trump undermined U.S. leadership, threatening, quote, our close friend and neighbor, that would be Mexico. On Saturday, Trump tweeted, quote, nervous Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats getting nothing done. And perhaps they could lead the way on the USMCA, which is the new trade deal with Canada and Mexico, that replaces NAFTA, the worst trade deal. On Friday, Trump tweeted, quote, for all the money we are spending on NASA, then I'm sorry, I'm just going to go into random stuff because this is like the world we live in. All of a sudden, Trump, this is what he was treating in, in the middle of all this. On Friday, he tweeted, for all the money we are spending, NASA should not be talking about going to the moon, saying they should be focused on bigger things, quote, including Mars, of which the moon is a part. Okay, so that happened uh, months ago. We covered that on the podcast. Trump had set a goal to put humans back on the moon by 2024 and budgeted $1.6 billion that he was taking away from Pell Grants for poor students going to college to fund it. It was unclear if Trump was backing off from his plan or exactly what he meant. The Washington Post also fact-checked Trump's tweets 
and noted it was unclear what Trump meant when he called the moon a part of Mars. The moon is a satellite of Earth. So I mentioned these things, you know, kind of haphazardly because that's the way he communicates and there continues to be concern about his mental health as well. Um, on Friday, a Russian destroyer nearly collided with a U.S. warship in the Philippine Sea. The U.S. Navy called the incident unsafe and unprofessional and released a video corroborating their version of the events, which Russia had denied. But again, now we have a video. But in the era of Trump, like, what was, you know, video, audio, you know, alternative reality? It's exactly what Russia does. Russia's state-controlled media claimed the near collision was staged by the U.S. to coincide with a visit by Chinese President Yi to Russia. However, amid this big controversy where there was almost this collision in the Philippines, see, Trump did not make a statement or tweet about the incident involving Russia. On Friday, Guardian reported Russian journalists Ivan Golanov was arrested and severely beaten in police custody with injuries including broken ribs and a concussion after covering state corruption and business interests. On Friday, the New York Times reported a raft of legislation meant to protect U.S. elections after Mueller's warnings of a sweeping and systematic Russian attack is being blocked by Senate Majority Leader McConnell. McConnell is facing pressure to act not only from Democrats, but also members of his own party. It is thought he does not want to enrage Trump, who views talks of interference as questioning the legitimacy of his 2016 win. The House is planning hearings to force his hand. On Friday, the Intelligence Committee said it would hold hearings on the Russian counterintelligence threat detailed in the Mueller report. On Saturday, the Washington Post reported the White House blocked the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research from submitting testimony on climate change to the House Intelligence Committee. The written testimony noted, quote, absent extensive mitigating factors or events, human-caused climate change could possibly be catastrophic and laid out implications of rising carbon emissions. Implications in the 12-page report obtained by the Post include rising global temperatures and acidifying the world's ocean, as well as contributing to the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. So just to recap, because we're going over so much, the Trump White House blocked this report by the State Department from going to the House Intelligence Committee. And so what happened was somebody leaked it to the Washington Post. It's 12 page report talks about possibly catastrophic consequences, implications of rising carbon emissions. Trump continues to deny global warming. Just another closing out with a couple of two other noteworthy stories because we've been talking about some of the other global stories happening on Tuesday an estimated 120,000 people marched in Prague to protest Czech Republic prime minister Andrzej Babis, who has been charged with Subsidiary with subsidy fraud. The crowd was the biggest since the end of communism. On Wednesday, Australian police raided the offices of Australian Broadcasting Corporation and a prominent journalist seeking files related to stories known as the Afghan files, raising concerns of press freedom in Australia. So this is becoming a global kind of phenomenon. We talk about these stories each week, the rise of authoritarianism and authoritarian impulses. Some places are getting better, 
So in places like Raise Your Hand USA are getting worse, where our leader can go to the UK, have 75,000 people show up and protest. And the stuff we're dealing in week in, week out, the American people seem exhausted and unable to rally in this way. And um, a, a sheer, a sense of sort of shared helplessness that I think for some that the people, you know, not more is being done to hold this regime accountable, that they still have suffered no consequences, even as they continue to stonewall our Congress. So with that, have a great week. We'll tune back in next week. Have a good one.